0: Hello, and thank you for listening to the Compassionate Conservative podcast series by the Eagle Free Press. My name is Miranda, and in each episode, I'll be talking about different ways to approach social justice issues and ideas from a conservative standpoint. Today's episode is all about race. Like the last episode, this is a bit of a foundational topic in the sense that there is not a single issue that doesn't have some kind of racial component to it. Race is also something that conservatives and the Republican Party really struggle with. We have a lot of potential twin over minority blocks that generally vote Democrat yet have a lot of conservative values. There are some things that it seems like we are doing right, but there are other things that we seem to do wrong, often without realizing it. And now is the time to come to terms with that and try to do better. And if you stick around till the end, I'll go into critical race theory and talk about an alternative anti-racism program that we could support. But let's start with some positives. The past four years, despite President Trump and Republicans being called a racist every two seconds, we made historical electoral gains between 2016 and 2020. In African Americans, Trump increased from 8% to 12% overall, with Black men jumping from 13 to 19% and Black women from 4% to 9%. In Hispanic majority counties, Trump's vote increased by 37%. Zapata County, for example, a Texas-Mexican border county which is 95% Hispanic, went 65% to Hillary Clinton in 2016 and 52% to Trump in 2020. He also gained among Asian Americans from 27% to 34%. These are some of the biggest minority gains of a Republican candidate since 1960. Some believe this is due to his strong stance against socialism, something that resonates with some Hispanic and Asian groups who have come from socialist or communist countries. Minority groups also tend to be religious, so Trump's pro-God and pro-life stance, as well as some other socially conservative values, did well with them. It also appears that strong immigration policy is a popular stance among African-American voters. Not only did he have values that people liked, but he got a lot done. Love him or hate him, the number of things he accomplished as a one-term president is impressive. Things like permanent funding for HBCUs, Opportunity Zones, and Progress and Criminal Justice Reform are just a few of them. People saw this, liked what he was doing, and wanted to give him their vote the second time around. However, it seems like these gains don't necessarily roll over into the Republican Party or conservative movement overall. And I think a lot of that has to do with the general conversation and arguments we have over race, not our values and policies. I won't waste time trying to prove that conservatives aren't racist because we aren't. But I do think we can do better at fighting that narrative when it comes to how we approach the topic of race in debate. I would say there are three categories of conservative arguments when it comes to race that have become pretty mainstream over the past five or ten years. First, there are historical arguments, such as how the Democratic Party founded the KKK and how the Republican Party was founded as the anti-slavery party. This has been popularized a lot by Dinesh D'Souza when he made the movies Death of a Nation and Hillary's America, The Seeker of the Democratic Party. Second, conservatives have really started digging into the cultural aspects of the struggles of minority communities. We focus on the violence in inner cities, the consequences of fatherless homes, the group of welfare dependency, failures of school systems, high rates of imprisonment, etc. Lastly are what I will call the academic arguments against things like systemic racism, white privilege, and critical race theory. I would say the Daily Wire crew with Ben Shapiro, Michael Knowles, Matt Walsh, and Candace Owens talk a lot about both cultural and academic arguments, and they have some fun mic drop moments at campus lectures. While all of these arguments have a lot of truth to them, they don't always address the exact points being made by liberals, or the message tends to be delivered very bluntly and in a way that isn't necessarily constructive. At a certain point, owning the libs with these arguments doesn't come across as empathetic or supportive, and are easy to twist into the ignorant and racist label we are always painted as. So let's go through these arguments to see how they might not work as well as we think and how we could remedy that. First is the historical argument. I get why we want to point out certain historical points of the parties. The Democratic Party starting the KKK is not a good look, and Republicans being the party of anti-slavery is. I definitely think these are interesting facts, but I spoke in the last episode about how learning history hasn't really changed my mind, and it probably won't change a liberal's mind either. Conservatives like to say that history is important to acknowledge, but we have made great progress and we can't keep reliving the past and punishing ourselves for our ancestors' mistakes. So why does that idea suddenly flip when it comes to the Democratic Party? We want to guilt them for the mistakes of party leaders 100 years ago, but we don't want to do that in any other context. In general, conservatives have to do a much better job at the listening part of politics, and history is where we can do that. Democrats are really good at listening and affirming the horrible history that many people want to know as acknowledged, but their policies, as we see in most Democratic-run cities, do very little to solve the problems they claim to understand. Republicans, on the other hand, have good policies, but we don't put the effort we should into showing that we understand the problems we are solving. People will be hesitant to show support for a policy when they think that people proposing it don't actually care. Fortunately, this is an easy fix. Now, I'm not saying that we need to do a 180 and suddenly become dwellers on the past the way the left seems to do. Eventually, we have to forgive each other and ourselves for what is in our history or else we are just continuously haunted by it and can never move forward. However, conservatives are probably jumping the gun a little on getting to a point like that. Whether you think it is justified or not, people are angry and have been led to believe that half of the country doesn't want to acknowledge or talk about why. Conservatives have to find that happy medium of addressing the past, showing understanding of it, and then bringing in the discussion on how our policies can help us move forward. I think that means moving away from our typical talking point that usually sounds like this. Yes, the past happened. It's horrible and we can talk about it, but it won't fix anything now. We want to know what the problems are and we can go from there to solve them. So we already seem like we have no interest in our history and yet we cherry pick historical moments like I mentioned earlier. We must show a willingness to address all history, not picking and choosing what looks good for us and then using that knowledge of the past to our advantage in these discussions today. So let's not cherry pick and learn about a different part of Republican history. Yes, it is true that Republicans were founded as the anti-slavery party and in Ripon, Wisconsin, by the way. But being anti-slavery didn't mean anti-racist. In the 1870s, seven black men were elected to the US Congress and all of them were Republican. In response to the power black people were gaining in the party and the perceived loss of white votes in the South because of it, the Republicans started the lily White Movement, which ousted all black people from their leadership. While this movement had been dying off since the early 20th century, groups of it survived well into the 1960s. That whole time, the Democratic Party played their cards right by marketing themselves as the party of minority groups with some smart policy moves, and they picked up that voting block right from underneath us. To be completely honest, I had never even heard of this until about two weeks ago when I was doing research for this episode, and this is pretty significant. Knowing this now, it seems ridiculous to me that so many Republican leaders scratched their head at why we lost and can't get back the minority vote. Maybe if we talked about this more and went deeper into what was happening during that time, we could figure out a way to do better outreach. Now, this doesn't mean that the Republican Party today is racist and we don't have to do an apology tour but I hope this brings to light the importance of understanding all history and learning from it so we can do better. I'm going to say it again louder for the people in the back. Learning more history does not inherently change people's values. How much has the talking point of the democratic founding of the KKK seemed to have hurt them? I don't think it's made a huge dent. Likewise, how many conservatives suddenly want to vote Democrat because of the lily white movement? I sure don't. So I plead with my fellow conservatives to get uncomfortable with our past. Learn about all history and the figures that have probably been left out, and don't shy away or immediately dismiss it as a bunch of liberal whining. When we truly understand why people are upset and what problems they want fixed, the better we can message our values and policies in a way that will be better received. So now let's dive into the cultural arguments. This includes a lot of the issues we see in our inner cities that are usually the root of a problem but harder to find solutions for. Our really big one is absent fathers and the single motherhood rate. Children without fathers in the home are more likely to live in poverty, drop out of high school, commit crime, and end up in prison. The single motherhood rate in the Black community today is about 75%. I hear all the time from conservative thought leaders about this self-perpetuating cycle that someone just has to break at some point by making better decisions. It is important to talk about root issues like this, especially today when it seems like a lot of policies are just Band-Aids on a gushing wound but these ideas can come across as condescending in two ways that I can see. First, the optics of old white Republicans telling black people what their problems are probably isn't perceived very well. The people who live this reality every day don't need us to tell them what their problems are. Second, it comes across as blaming black communities for their problems and gives them no credit for a lot of the ways they try to overcome. Yes, people do have to make the right choices and there are no explicit laws in place holding people back from doing so. But I think we could be more empathetic to the non-legal barriers that all of us recognize. We wouldn't talk so much about single motherhood if we didn't think that not having a father is a disadvantage that can severely impact a person's life experiences and outcome. We cannot just talk about all the horrible things going on in inner city communities and then tell them to just make better choices. We are not that cold and I know we are not because we offer a lot of policy solutions that can address these issues and support these communities. We made great bipartisan progress with criminal justice reform. We promote school choice and voucher programs. We want to support entrepreneurs and small businesses who employ people in their community. Lately, we've even been focusing more on policies like paid maternity leave and job training opportunities. This is where the focus of the conversation should be. I think we should talk about the issues as a foundation for talking about our policies, and more importantly, how our policies support and empower people to make those better choices we say are necessary. Another aspect of this is making sure we are giving credit where credit is due. Both parties, especially when it comes to minority groups, like to take credit for the achievements that come about nationally under their administrations. For example, Trump really pushed the fact that we achieved record low Black and Hispanic unemployment rates. That is true, but those unemployed employment rates were decreasing both under the Obama and Bush administrations. So it probably wasn't just the policies of one president or party. And there is work going into these communities that no one but the people in these communities can take credit for. Especially as conservatives, we are all about taking the initiative to improve the lives of ourselves and those around us. So we should be learning about and highlighting these efforts every chance we get. Minorities are not hurt puppies waiting for Republican or Democratic policies to come save them. And while that may seem obvious, a lot of people on both sides, whether they realize it or not, act like it. Lastly, we have these academic arguments. Honestly, I think the fighting over issues like white privilege, unconscious bias, and systemic racism are mostly a waste of time for both the right and the left. Not that they aren't worth talking about, but both sides are just talking past each other and I don't think there is anything that can be said to change someone's mind on either side. Let's take white privilege, for example. It seems to me that the general consensus on the left is that it exists, but there is nothing that can really be done about it except to be aware that you are probably a horrible person who benefits from it and you should try to stop being a horrible person by constantly acknowledging that you benefit from it. Then the consensus on the right is that it doesn't exist, and even if it does, it doesn't disrupt the everyday lives of minorities the way the left suggests, and it just causes more problems to be pointing it out all the time. Both sides have their arguments to support their position, but for the sake of time on this episode, I won't go through them. It is still important to understand what those arguments are, even though I'm not explaining them right now, so I have a couple of sources on the EFP website that I encourage everyone to look at. Have these discussions, but don't go into it thinking you are going to change someone's mind. Instead, try to understand where the other is coming from. And now, let's talk about the biggest issue in our academic race debates, critical race theory. The definition is broad and worded a little differently depending on where you look, but I would sum it up as the critical thinking of history, culture, and political structures through the lens of race and its relationship to those things. I straight up don't like it. I think it is incredibly divisive, not just between race groups, but within race groups as well. I think it belittles the complex experiences of each individual by defining them only by their race and encourages hatred and discrimination. Again, this is something that I don't think there is much convincing to be had on either side, but we need to understand the different perspectives on it, and I want to share mine. So I'm half Puerto Rican from my mom's side and Danish-Scottish, aka white, on my dad's. I'm from Nenisa Depot, a small town that is surrounded by a bunch of other small towns in between the cities of Waukesha and Oconomowoc. A lot of middle and upper middle class families that are mostly white live in that area. When I'm home, I'm often the only Latina among my friends or at work, and I noticed that at a young age. I personally do not remember this, but my mom told me that when I was in kindergarten, she picked me up from school and I asked her, why am I so much darker than the other kids? She responded by saying, Miranda, one day, all of those kids will pay good money to have a skin color like yours. It's funny because it's true, but in all seriousness, I think about that story when I see Instagram posts from accounts like, so you wanna talk about, or the ACLU, about how we should be talking about race with younger children. They say these concepts aren't as foreign to them as we might otherwise think, and this confirms that. However, my family almost never talked about race, and definitely not in the way those accounts would suggest. My mom never told me that I might be treated differently or face specific obstacles because of my complexion. She taught me that I have to treat everyone with respect, regardless of what they look like, to work hard, and to never give anyone power over me or tell me what I can or can't do. And I did just that. I accomplished a lot in high school and so far in college that I'm really proud of. I'll save you all the bragging because that isn't cute. But the reason I bring it up at all is because my skin color has never been something that held me back from doing the things I wanted to do. I did fail and struggle a lot too. In high school, I ran for the e-boards of both my honor societies and for president of the student council and lost all three times. I wanted to be the captain of my dance team and didn't get that. I was bullied, not just by kids, but by parents and adults at the school. Critical race theory might say that I didn't win those e-board positions because of some unconscious bias of my white classmates. Maybe I was the one bullied because I was an easier target due to my skin color. If I'd ever been taught that and believed it, I don't think I ever would have gotten back up and continued on to do the things I have been able to accomplish. Each of those losses would have been so much more devastating than they otherwise were because they supposedly happened for a reason that is completely out of my control, and I find that to be such a defeating mindset. Not to mention how harmful and confusing the ideas of critical race theory are when you're biracial. I am literally in a constant state of identity crisis. When I'm home, we are one of the few Hispanic families in the area. My family does a great job of teaching and celebrating that culture with me and it's like no one could ever take that away from me but then i come to school at marquette and suddenly i don't ever feel hispanic enough it's like i'm not allowed to claim that part of me i don't have a hispanic last name my skin is not as dark as some other latinos i don't speak fluent spanish and to top it all off i'm conservative I live two realities. It's like I have to pick one race to fit into a mold of either white or Hispanic, but doing that doesn't fully describe me or my experiences. I have to constantly remind myself that I shouldn't be defined by my race and mold into the expectations of one or the other. And it takes a lot of mental energy to do that when that is what I'm constantly being told. All of this is why I don't like it. But to finally circle back to the point I made earlier, my experience and my opinions on critical race theory are unlikely to change someone's mind. Someone listening to this who does ascribe to CRT will find ways to pick apart my experience to affirm their beliefs, just as I could do the same to them. But like I said earlier, I do think it is worth hearing those experiences and at least understanding where people come from, which is why I felt the need to share. Okay, I have one last thing I want to talk about in this episode, and it has to do with how Republican lawmakers are responding to CRT. For some reason, their answer to this ideology is to ban it in schools. The reasoning is because it promotes discrimination and division, indoctrinates children to hate their country, etc. But the people who support critical race theory, as I have said, don't see it that way. Not to mention that it is being taught everywhere, and I don't think we are about to go as far as banning what can appear in TV shows or social media. It is all very hypocritical, to say the least. We have spent the last four years talking about how banning speech and ideas that you disagree with sets a dangerous precedent. But here we are, banning speech and ideas. Our goal usually is and should continue to be beating bad ideas with better ones. And in doing research, I might have found one. One Black conservative leader, Chloe Valdry, founded an alternative anti-racism program called the Theory of Enchantment. They give you materials like books, music, movies, and poetry, and it's all rooted in developmental psychology as it guides you through four phases. The first phase is more self-reflective as you try to understand your own complexity, baggage and identity, and management of self-control and emotions. The second phase is about recognizing that similar complexity in others, building relationships, empathy, and not prejudging or misjudging others. Third, the program differentiates between positive criticism that improves versus criticism that exploits, and seeing the value in every person. Lastly, it practices the idea of loving your neighbor as yourself and showing what that looks like in action. Now that is something I can get behind. It is not about finding people or things to blame, but loving and seeing the value in everyone while encouraging productive and respectful conversations about our experiences in a way that builds each other up instead of trying to tear others down. When it comes to race and talking about all of the sensitive experiences in history, we need to encourage doing that with love and understanding, not hate and anger. If you go to our website, theeaglefreepress.com, you can find this episode posted with a ton of sources, including the Theory of Enchantment website that I highly encourage you to check out. There's a lot of stuff in this episode to digest, so I hope you take the time to read through some of those sources and keep thinking about these ideas. Let me know if you agree or disagree with these approaches and messaging that I suggest, if you learned anything new, and if you enjoy considering these different perspectives on conservative thought. We are in the business of starting real conversations. So contact us through our website by sending an email or commenting on our post with any questions or comments. If you like this episode, make sure to follow us on Spotify, subscribe on Google Podcasts, download it for later and share it with others. Also, please subscribe to the Eagle Free Press and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter to stay up to date with our latest content. Thanks for listening, and I hope you join me next time as I dive into one of my favorite topics, climate change, with a super special guest, Benji Backer, the founder of the American Conservation Coalition.